Good morning, everyone. My name is Amy Winkle, and I'm the rector here at Emmanuel. It's good to see you all this morning in the house of the Lord. Thank you for continuing to whoop whoop at me. I really, really appreciate it. It gives me great joy. Um, We are going to continue our study in the book of Philippians. So we've kind of, we've been in the the book of Matthew, and then um, the lectionary actually in the epistle reading um, was has taken is taking us through the book of Philippians. So we felt like, oh, we can kind of shift gears just a little bit, stay within the lectionary, but but go through an epistle um, just for kind of a change um, and to change things up, see what the Lord might have to to say to us through this book. And I think there's just so much richness um, in this letter from from Paul to this small church in in Philippians. Um, in Philippi, and so I'm just thankful for what it has to say to us. We have other, another opportunity besides just Sunday mornings um, to engage with this text, and those are coming up starting this week. So on Tuesday night, on October 3rd, and then October 10th, we'll have two nights of contemplative prayer within the book of Philippians. So if you want to engage this text more in a, in a different space, um, we invite you into that. Uh, you don't have to come for both nights. Like if you're not able to come both nights, but just one, that's great. Um, they don't necessarily build on one another, and so you can can jump in as you are able to. So just want to um, extend that to you. If you're interested, you can register online on the events page. Okay, our um, text for this morning, we're going to be moving into chapter two. And so let's read together, and then we'll pray, and then we'll see what the Lord has to say to us. So chapter 2, starting in verse 1, going to verse 13. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, But in humility, regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, something to be exploited. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved... Just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more so now in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we come humbly and in faith to this passage that lays out so beautifully your heart. Not only heart, Lord, but your action toward us. And so, God, may we hear your voice. 
Jesus, may we experience what you have done for us in deep and meaningful ways, in ways that change and transform us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so this passage kind of picks up where we left off last week. So last week um, we walked through part of chapter 1, and we ended um, with verse 27 where we talked about living lives worthy of the gospel. And that verse actually is kind of a hinge point, so to speak, of what went before in chapter 1 and then what's coming in chapter 2. And so what we see Paul doing with that particular thing to say, like we are, we're meant to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. What he's going to continue to do into chapter 2 is to kind of flesh that out a little bit more. Like what does that mean? Um, what, what are we being called to as believers and as the church? And so um, we see him um, kind of fleshing that out more in chapter 2. And so he's beginning chapter the chapter 2, or the passage that we just read, kind of beginning and ending this section, addressing believers and how they are meant to live and to embody Christian community. Um, and, and so doing, he's kind of telling them this is what it means to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. But at the heart of this passage is this description of Christ. And so I want us to really start there and park there for a while because there's just so much um, that he says in just, you know, a few, a few sentences. But that just is that's really at the heart of the gospel and of who Jesus is. And so if we're able to put the, um, the passage back up on the screen, sorry I didn't mention that to anybody, but if we're able to do that, that would be great. Um, and we're starting with verse 6. Well, and we'll go back to verse 5 for a second. So he says, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. And then verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be exploited. So, well, sorry, just a little bit about this whole, this whole section here. Um, he's basically laying this out just to kind of say this is the model that Jesus puts before us. And that if we are meant to imitate Jesus, here's what we can do. But what, the, what we think this comes from is like this whole section here, 6 through 11, may have been like a hymn or a poem in the church, in the early church. It may have been written by Paul, but it could have predated Paul even. Um, but what we're seeing here is this sense of like this is at the heart from the very early beginnings of the church, of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And so there's, it's very theological. But what Paul does is he takes this very theological statement and he puts it in, a, in something very practical. He kind of highlights it in a practical kind of way. Um, and so it's really interesting what he's doing here. And so we're going to walk through it together. So in verse 6, um, he begins with the Godhead, the reality that Jesus was in the form of God, that Jesus is God, and that, that he's always been there, that that has been um, his, his identity throughout and yet, what we see is this idea that he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or exploited. So here, I think in RSV it says exploited. But there are other ways that this word can be translated. It could be grasped, could be asserted, possessed by force, cling to the advantages. Do you feel what that feels like? 
that he did not consider equality with God something that he could just grasp and hold on to, cling to, what, out of desperation, maybe? Out of a sense of need? Out of a sense of fear? Right? That's when I want to clasp or grasp onto something, is when I feel like it might be taken away from me. And so that sense of, like, power around it, that sense of desperation around it that we hear in this word, that that is not, was not the reality for Jesus. But instead, he let it go. Verse 7 says, he emptied himself. Do you feel that? Not something to be grasped. Instead, he emptied himself. This Greek term, kenosis, this idea of self-emptying, doing so of his own choice, of his own volition. Not in the sense that he was no longer divine. He kept his identity as God. And yet, at the same time, he accepted the limitations that came with taking on flesh and blood. And how do we think about this? I mean, it's, it's not easy to kind of, di- we want to like dissect it out, right? Like how did that work? Like what did, when, it, when Jesus emptied himself, what does that mean? What did he really let go of? I, mean, I think one of the obvious ones we can talk about is him, his omnipresence, right? As God, he was omnipresent. And yet he chose to limit himself by taking on flesh and blood and locating himself in a certain time and place through the incarnation. And so he chose to be limited, but at the same time, he did not cease to be God. He never lost his identity as God. And so we see here in this, in this poem, in this hymn, this idea of his, him being truly divine and truly human at the same time. And so what did this, this idea of him being truly human, what did that look like? Verse 8 tells us that he takes on the form of a slave, being born into human likeness and being found in human form. And then it goes even further. He emptied himself and humbled himself even to death on the cross. So he chose limitations for the sake of others. He did not change his identity as a second person of the Trinity. His identity is and was the same. But he chose to take on human form, the form of a slave, for us, for our sake, to go to the cross. That he could see, that that God could see the chasm that was between us and him. And so Jesus chose to come in the form of a slave to cross that chasm, to die and to be raised again so that we can have communion with God. But this whole idea of limitation, and not only limitation, I mean, as humans, we get limitation, right? Like, we don't like it, but we bump up against it all the time. But this takes it a step further in a way that I think confounds us in the sense that Jesus chose to be limited in the incarnation. And that is so opposite of the way that the world works. We do not choose to be limited most of the time, right? 
And if we do, if we find we come up against limitations, we really hate it. And yet what we see Jesus doing is choosing to come in limitation. If we step back and think about it for a minute, it's like God, I mean, God could have done this in lots of ways, right? He could have come in all of his majesty and splendor and made things right. But instead, it cost him. He chose the limitations, and it cost him his life. And yet, when we go into verse 9, God exalted him, resurrected him from the dead, and gave him the name that is above all names, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is our gospel. Amen? So here is the model that Jesus shows us. Not grasping, but letting go, while also keeping his identity. Choosing limits for the sake of others. And then allowing himself to be exalted. The reality is, is that as humans, we tend to do the opposite. We try to grasp onto things, cling onto things as a way to be known, as a way to be seen, a way to be loved, a way to get our needs met out of a sense of fear and desperation that we're not okay or that we're not going to be okay. We just got to hold on so tight. If I can just hold on to this, then maybe I'll be okay. And the invitation that we see here is the invitation to let go. But how do we let go? <laughs> I think it begins with a deep realization that we are known and seen and loved by God. That our identity is not found in whatever it is that we're trying to grasp to so tightly. Whatever it is that we're trying to cling to. But our identity is found in the fact that we are children of God. That we are known and we are loved and we are seen by him. So much so that Jesus limited himself, took on the form of human, and went to the cross on our behalf. That is how much... We are loved and seen and known by God. And therefore, it's out of that place, out of that realization that we are able to let go. And in that space of letting go, we can choose to take on limitations for the sake of others. With this comes the trust that God then will give us what we need and that we don't have to find it for ourselves. Now, this whole idea, Paul is telling us, that when we live this way, not grasping but letting go and allowing ourselves to be limited for the sake of others, when we're living this way, we are living true Christian community. We are living in the way that the Lord has called us to. When I can let go and not have to grasp to get my needs met, 
when I can trust that God will meet my needs, then I am able to truly see you. I am able to know you and to see you and love you. I'm able to hear your story and hear what needs you might have. And then I get to serve you in a godly way. And that may look like limiting myself in a way that allows space for you. And you're able to do the same for me and for other believers as well. This is how we get to live together in Christian community. So for Paul, this is how he describes this type of community in the beginning verses of this passage. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. Maybe sit on a lower stool than the other people sitting next to you. (laughs) Don't look out for your own interests, but for the interests of others. And so when when you hear those words, it's kind of like, okay, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? And we go back again to this model again. To do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility means that I can't grasp, but I have to let go. I have to choose to take on limits for the sake of others and then allow God to give me what I need. So sometimes when we talk about servanthood, I think we can fall into like different sins, so to speak. Our fallenness and our sinfulness can make us, when we hear the word servanthood or start talking about servanthood, we can approach that in some different ways. One might be that we might just lose ourselves in the midst of serving. Anybody? Like, so me, my husband and I both are Enneagram nines. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking about Enneagram, so I just apologize in advance, but here we go. He and I both are Enneagram nines. And so one of the realities of our marriage is that we are always trying to merge with one another, which is weird. Um, one of the, the ways I thought about it was when we were early married, we, um, you know how like one of the things when you get married is like, how, how are you going to do the toilet paper roll? Anybody? Um, like, is it going to go over or does it go under? Right? So, hey, I know, I hear people, do we need to take a vote? Should we take a vote? Okay. So, so like, do you, does it go over or does it go under? So when we first got married, like Johnny put it over and I put it under and we realized this right away. And so what did we do? We both switched. Right? Like, and, and so we're like, okay, we guys got to decide, um, which is not our strong suit. But um, anyway, so, but there, there could be that tendency to just sort of lose ourselves, to try to merge with somebody else as a way of serving them. But that is out of our sinfulness. That is not what God has called us to do. Another way that we might try to serve is to serve someone as a way of getting our own needs met. I can serve you so that I can get something from you. And again, that is not biblical servanthood. That is something about something in us that needs healing. Or servanthood might look like serving as a way of getting approval, of being liked, of shape-shifting ourselves in such a way that, um, that I can serve you so that you'll like me. And again... That's not what God is asking us to do. That's not what he's calling us to. Because the point here, again, 
is that true biblical servanthood comes out of a place of us deeply knowing who we are in Jesus, of knowing that we are children of God, that we belong to him. And it's out of that knowledge that then I can come and serve you. And you can serve me. And we can be in relationship with one another. Because we're doing it out of the fact that we are all loved and known and seen by God. And therefore, if that's how I am getting, if, if the Lord is, is um, speaking into me and that I know that he is my true source, I'm not trying to get it from you. But instead, I can serve you. And it may be, and you can serve me, and it may be that we are meeting one another's needs, but we're doing it in a way that God is meeting our needs. Does that make sense? Like, it's not a sense of, like, I have to look to you. I'm looking to God, and God may use you to meet my need, but really, he's the one. He's the true source for each one of us. That's what, what um, biblical servanthood looks like. So the question is, why is it important? That we live this way, that we live in community this way. Dean Fleming, who is a professor of New Testament admissions in the Nazarene Church, says this. That this, what, it, what Paul's laying out here, is not so much an intellectual activity as it is a life attitude or a mindset which results in a certain type of lifestyle. Consequently, when Paul urges the Philippians to be like-minded, he's not saying that they must ha all have identical ideas, opinions, or points of view. In the context, having the same mind involves subordinate, subordinating selfish desires for the good of the community. It means sharing the same priorities, having a unified purpose, and embracing a common way of seeing the world. This idea of emptying ourselves isn't so much about we just like go blank and all become the same. No, you bring your unique sensibilities and I bring my unique sensibilities and yet we're doing it all for the same purpose. We're doing it all in servitude of the Lord in ways that we can love and serve him and also one another. So this is a lifestyle that we embody that comes from what Paul says in verse 12, our working out of our salvation with fear and trembling by allowing God to be at work in us. Now, that whole idea of working out our salvation with fear and trembling is such an interesting, and I'm sure there's like lots of ways to think about it, but one of, one of the ways that came to my mind was just going back to this idea of grasping onto something, the idea of letting go does that not fear, feel like fear and trembling to you? Like I can almost see like the hands that are grasped when they let go, boy, they're shaking, right? Working out our salvation is continuing to let go in fear and trembling sometimes, trusting that God is going to take care of us. Not that we earn our salvation, but that it just takes time to work this thing out and to change us, to mold us into the image of Jesus. Here's what it looks like for me. What's become a, a monthly practice for me is walking through the stations of the cross. And I don't know if I can talk about it without crying. <laughs> if, 
you're familiar, like in the Catholic tradition, there a lot of times they have like the stations of the cross, like where you sort of walk with Jesus as he's walking to the cross. And so I've made this like part of just a monthly rhythm for me. I've literally like kind of just walking through the images and usually like playing some kind of worship music or something like that. But what it does is reminds me of what Jesus has done on our behalf. What we see as we walk through the stations of the cross and we walk with Jesus to the cross is not that he chose just once to let go, but he chose over and over and over again to let go of his own power for us to be taken to the cross on our behalf. And if that is not a picture of love, I don't know what is. Every time it drives me to my knees. The links that he was willing to go out of love for us is something that we have to be reminded of time and time and time again. And so I just encourage you, whatever that looks like for you, of finding a rhythm where you come face to face with Philippians 2, to say that Jesus did not consider and regard equality with God something that had to be grasped onto, but instead he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. That is our attitude. That is our mindset that we live out of and that we serve out of. And it takes time to work that into us because it is contrary to our nature and to our world. So here are my questions for you today. What are you grasping onto? What are you clinging to? And what is the true need that's underneath that grasping that you're not sure that you can really truly trust God to provide for you? Because that's at the heart of it, right? If I'm having to cling, it means I've don't know if I really believe that God's going to come through. So what is that for you? And do you feel invited by the Lord to let it go? Even if it's just one little pinky. But would you be willing to start to let it go? And then as you are able to let go, Asking ourselves, how might Jesus be calling us to limit ourselves 
for the sake of our brothers and sisters and community? How might we serve someone around us for his sake? Lord, we need your help. God, we are so thankful that you have not left us in our sinful state. But Jesus, that you are willing to come and to limit yourself for, on our behalf so that you might be exalted and given the name that is above every name. So God, may we just fall at your feet and worship you for that. And may we come to a deep understanding, Lord, of how much we are loved and seen and known by you. And then I pray, Lord, that we could turn that outward to one another so that we can know and see and love one another in your name. Amen.